Welcome to episode 157 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends, did you hear about the recent shipment of avocados that was tainted with a possibly fatal bacteria? That doesn't mean you should never eat avocados. It means that all of us benefit when we're a little more careful about bad bacteria and how we can handle them. If you've been struggling with viruses and you don't have the energy you used to have, then it's more than likely that your body has been producing too much of a stress hormone called cortisol and that you might be playing host to too much bad bacteria. Especially now with all of the mass media surrounding the coronavirus, we'd like to remind everyone that being in fear and panic lowers our immune response and our ability to deal with disease or trauma. One potential solution can be probiotics, but the problem with most probiotics is that they can seem to use big numbers of billions of colony-forming units to change your gut microbiome, but research actually doesn't support this for all strains. Studies actually show that many probiotics go through your system and don't do very much. That's why you can focus on a probiotic that protects your gut and immune system from specifically the dangerous forms of bad bacteria, kind of like the ones that were on those avocados. That's why we're big fans here of a probiotic called P3OM. It uses just one proven probiotic strain that is so effective it's been patented. And what it does really well is that it can fight off the bad guys. Things like parasites, viruses, and other pathogens in your gut. P3OM is so awesome at fighting bad bacteria and upgrading your digestion that you can actually see it break down food online when you go to p3om.com slash ifpodcast. You can actually see it break down a piece of steak, literally. That's P3, the letter O, M, forward slash I-F-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And the guys at Bioptimizers are so confident that you're going to like it, they'll give you all your money back if you don't. Just read all the details in their policy. And of course, we have a special offer just for our listeners. If you go to p3om.com forward slash ifpodcast and use the coupon code ifpodcast10, you'll get 10% off your order. Again, that's p3om.com forward slash ifpodcast with the coupon code IFPODCAST10 for 10% off your order. So if you've never tried a high-end probiotic that can help push the bad guys out of your gut, or if you've had problems with your gut, or you just don't feel good after a trip, or you just had antibiotics, or whatever it may be, definitely give this stuff a try. All right, now enjoy the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 157 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day. The sun is shining. Makes me happy. 
How is quarantine life? Oh my gosh, it's so weird to think about, you know, I don't know if I mentioned it on the podcast before, but there's that meme that's going around that says when you realize your daily life is now called quarantine, because really for me, not much has changed. I realize now that we're in quarantine and Georgia actually did just issue, you know, the the stay at home order, what are they calling it? Shelter in place, like so many other states have done. But I realize I really am a homebody. And this is the way I normally live my life. I rarely go anywhere. Like every now and then I'll go to the store in my normal life. And once a week I go have coffee with friends on Saturday. But it really hasn't cramped my style a lot. Now, my husband, he's a different story. He's always wanting to go here or there and everywhere. So he's having a hard time with it. Yeah, he's having a hard time with it. But he likes to go to like 20 stores and buy things at each one. And I don't. He knows where everything's the cheapest in town. He'll go to five places and get the, you know, what he gets at each little place where I'll just go one place and I'll buy whatever's there. And he's like, how much was that? I'm like, I don't even know. I didn't look. And it drives him crazy. That's so funny. He's like, you could have gotten that for 20 cents less if you'd have gone to, you know, this other store. I'm like, well, but it was worth 20 cents for me to not go to that other store. (laughs) He really can't stand it. That's really funny. I'm lucky to have him. He goes, you know, it's like the hunter-gatherer. He's doing the hunter-gathering, and I'm here making the home. But I'm perfectly happy to stay home, which is really a good character trait to have when you're in quarantine. So how about you? Similar to what you were saying, the meme about realizing your daily life qualifies as quarantine. So that's all the same with the podcast. The thing that is different is I... I don't think I've ever said this on the podcast, but I have like perpetually had a serving job like for years. <laughs> it, it's kind of like, it keeps me sane. I'm a homebody like you. And so it forces me to, you know, get out of the apartment to not think about all the things I'm thinking about and just exercise at the same time. Cause waiting tables is actually a pretty good workout, especially if you're in the fasted state, it's like a really great workout and it's like functional movement. You know, you're moving you're not doing like a workout at the gym. You're just like moving things and picking up plates and like running around. Heavy things. Yeah. So literally I find it so healthy for my body, but I obviously don't have that job now because we all lost that job. That's actually been a bit of a struggle. I've actually been contemplating getting a job at a grocery store or something like that just to maintain that a few days a week. But something that was interesting was I realized, I think it's so interesting when there's like a weird quirk or a weird trait that you have that your parents also have. It makes me think like, what causes that? Like, you know, because you're not going to have a gene to inherit that certain trait. It's like, what causes that? Like, I think I talked about before on the podcast, like my sister is like really obsessed with like nice cars and like it's really important to her and that's like something my dad is really obsessed with and it's like did she inherit that quality it's hard to know yeah so like right now with quarantine my dad and I realized that we have this weird habit that I thought was just me but you know how I talked about I have to go to the grocery store like every single day right apparently he does too and we realized that it's the same thing like even if we don't need anything we have to at least go to the grocery store and like find something we need that's like my husband he needs to go somewhere and get something He needs to do it. He has to do it every day. I have to. (laughs) Like, this has to happen. And I was talking to my dad and he was like, he's like, I do that too. He's like, I have to go to Publix every day. I have to get something. (laughs) I was like, me too. Yeah, like my husband was like really upset when I started using Instacart. Yeah. He's like, but, but. I'm like, no, but I needed it right now and I didn't want to go get it. (laughs) So... 
he would never use Instacart. Whereas I'm like, yay, I don't even have to leave the house. It's coming straight to me. That is so funny. That's so funny. It really is. He's my Insta Chad. Oh, that's great. Insta Chad. If I lived there, I would be your Insta Melanie. Yay, that would be fun. Yeah, I just love the, it's like you have a task and you go do it. It requires physical movement and you have to like find the thing and then you find the thing and then you buy it and then you come home and it's like, yeah. Yeah, I just like the thing to show up. (laughs) Anyway, he's having a hard time with it and he, you know, he's a chemistry professor and was teaching organic chemistry to this semester, a quarter, I guess their quarter, plus he or, I don't know, I think maybe it is semester. I think it is semester now. They used to be quarter, now they're semester. But he also was teaching this other chemistry class, but all of them had labs. And of course, now they're doing it online. You can't do lab online. So they're having to really figure out what to do. And they can't do the type of exams they've always had. So he's trying to figure out you know, how to make that work. You know, some subjects you can really easily do online. Chemistry lab, no. Let's just create a, an autopsy on like a rodent or something. At home. Well, they weren't doing that in chemistry. Yeah, I know. But I'm thinking of other like other subjects that would not do well. No. It, you know, the hands-on lab courses, the sciences. You just really... You can mix some chemicals at home and blow up your apartment. Please don't. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when I was little, you know, those like, those like at home, like lab kit things. Oh, yeah. I remember I got one for Christmas when I was really young and... I remember even then being shocked that like these were things they would give to children because like it was all of these compounds and like some of them had like skull crossbones on them. And I was like, how, how are my parents safely giving me this, this thing? Good times. <laughs> they probably wouldn't sell those now. Probably not. I'm gonna have to Google that after this. That's a really good question. I mean, we used to have candy that was shaped like cigarettes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And they would smoke. They would smoke. Do you remember the ones that smoked? Yes. Because if you puffed on it, powdered sugar would come out. I mean, yeah. Yeah, because I remember I'd be really upset because there was like a version of it that didn't make the smoke. Like there were some candy cigarettes that didn't, but then some of them did. And I was, and if I got the ones that didn't make the smoke, I was like, this is, this is such a sham. I mean, that's just crazy to think about. That would not happen now. <laughs> no. <laughs> Do you mind really quickly a COVID resource for listeners? So this week I actually released on the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. I did a very, very long, (laughs) extensive interview with Dr. Kirk Parsley. And he makes that sleep remedy supplement that is like a game changer for so many people. It's basically all the natural substrates your brain needs to fall asleep. But in any case, he's been conducting a lot of interviews about COVID. He's a former MD to the Navy SEALs, and he's just a breadth of knowledge. And that interview was, I think, really, really helpful. And I was encouraged because I was talking to my mom before recording it. And she was like, Melanie, maybe you don't want to put out COVID interviews because certain governments might come after you. Um, (laughs) I was like, no, it's fine. I want to share information. Um, But she listened to it yesterday and literally was obsessed and called me and talked about it for like hours. So I think it's a very valuable resource. And then I'll put a link to in the show notes. And then also next week, I'm interviewing David Sinclair about COVID, which can you hear me smiling? I can. Yep. I'm just so excited. So two back-to-back interviews. I said I wasn't going to do any COVID interviews because I didn't want to, you know, there's so much out there on it. But if it can be with the people that I think are providing really valuable information and very, you know, not promoting like scare tactics or anything like that, I think it can be a very valuable resource. So I'll put links to that in the show notes. Awesome. Shall we jump into everything for today? 
Yes, let's get started. Right. So to start things off, we have a question from Becky. The subject is positive feedback from long distance runner plus a question. She says, oh my goodness, you two, I can't express how much this podcast changed my life. Thank you for all the research and work you do to make that research accessible to all your listeners. I found your podcast about 10 months ago and I've been doing a daily eating window ever since. Started gradually with a 12-12 window because I used to eat immediately after waking up. Gradually progressed to 14-10 and then 16-8 and then 18-6. And now what feels best to me is somewhere between 18-6 and 24. In general, I always eat real whole foods, mostly plants, occasionally some meat. I'm a fruit lover, just like you, Melanie. That's wonderful. That's me saying that. She says, oh, and of course, I fast clean. I experimented with flavored seltzer a while back and it didn't go well. So I'm a stickler for the clean fast. And I'm sure Jen thinks that is wonderful. Absolutely. You know, once you've tried the the clean fast, you really know the difference when you experiment with something that isn't. This is true. She says, anyway, I was a little hesitant to try IF because I am such a runner. The way you love teaching Jen and the way you love biohacking Melanie, that's how much I love running. It makes me happy and connected to nature. I've been running about 40 to 50 miles per week for several years now, but the popular opinion is that you need to be constantly fueling in order to run better. Running stores sell gels and chews and sports drinks that you're supposed to consume right before you start and every 45 minutes or so during a run. And you're supposed to eat within 30 minutes of finishing a run as well, but I love marathons. And my feeling was you need to be able to burn fat for fuel if you want a good marathon performance. Maybe fasting will actually help. So I tried it and it does. I know you get a lot of questions about long distance running and or endurance sports, but don't have much experience with it. So I wanted to report on how it feels. It feels amazing. I just wanted to report that now I do almost all of my runs fasted and have my best, fastest performances completely fasted. I do faster, harder workouts fasted and feel amazing. And I even do long runs like 16 to 18 miles fasted. It feels so much better. I don't have to stop to poop every hour, sorry, TMI, and my body can focus on running rather than digesting, and I don't have to carry sticky goo around with me. My question is, I've been super happy doing 18.6 to 24, eating a mostly plant-based diet. I don't restrict any macros, and I don't count anything. Should I try ADF? Is there a benefit to incorporating those longer fasts a couple times per week if I've already found something I love that works for me? I'm afraid I'd be too bingy, and I'm afraid of what my runs would feel like on the up days. If you think I should try it, how long should I try it for? Also, do you think Starbucks via instant coffee, black, might break a fast? Thanks so much for everything you do. Becky from Tucson, Arizona. All right. So thank you so much for the email, Becky. First of all, I think we really, really appreciated all the feedback you gave on the marathon running. Do you have thoughts on that, Jen? Yeah, I think that's great to hear because... You know, she's someone who has experienced it and she knows that her body is perfectly fine fueling on the fat and that she feels better. She's faster and she feels amazing. So I think that the the proof is in the pudding or the proof is in the fasted run, as we should say. I've heard that feedback before from people in the fasting groups. So it's good to hear more confirmation of it. Yeah, I think it's great. I feel like we don't get as much of feedback about the the exercise, so it's really valuable when we receive this. I think so, yeah. So what do you think about her trying ADF? Personally, I don't see any reason for you to try it if you're happy with what you're doing and you feel great. I don't really know why you would want to. 
unless you have something specific that you're working on that you think a longer fast would help you with. But just, you know, for example, I haven't done a fast that spanned two overnight periods since 2016. And here we are in 2020. So it's been, gosh, it's been four years since I've done a fast longer than a dinner to dinner. I've had an occasional maybe 25, 26 if I ate early one day and then ate late the next day because I was busy, but nothing that spanned two overnight periods. And, you know, I'm just fine. I have no desire to do ADF right now. Now, if I wanted to lose more weight and, you know, the daily eating window approach was not doing it for me and because I had plateaued there, ADF would be something I would try. If I suspected I had insulin resistance and the daily eating window approach wasn't doing it for me, I would try ADF. But if you feel great and what you're doing is working and you're you're happy with your weight and your or your rate of weight loss, everything is going fine. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I don't know, what do you think, Melanie? Yeah, those are pretty much my thoughts exactly. I see no reason to, especially if you think it might make you binge or you think it might be, you know, a struggle. If something's working for you, I don't see any reason to try it unless, like Jen said, you have a very specific goal in mind. So if you're trying to, you know, work with the plateau or, you know, lose more weight or possibly for like the longevity benefits or the health benefits. Even with that, I think ADF might help. But if you're doing that, you might want to even commit to like a, I don't know, a lot of people will do like a three-day fast or something like that. But especially also right now, this is something to bring up. I'm going to ask David Sinclair about this next week, but there's been a lot of debate about right now with COVID and the response about if shorter or longer fasts are better. And I haven't admittedly done a lot of research on it. I will before the interview and then I will have the interview. So I'll have more information then. But what I've seen briefly, it seems that, you know, maintaining your typical intermittent fasting daily pattern is probably, you know, great. There seems to be some debate about if longer fasts, you know, 36 hours or more, that actually might not be the best thing right now with the COVID situation. So I just wanted to throw that out there. And like I said, yeah, I've seen that chatter too. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, when this airs, that David Sinclair episode will have aired. So you can listen to that for more information. Yeah. Dr. Jason Fung sent an email about it to his email list about the fasting. And he said that he felt like the daily intermittent fasting pattern with the eating windows is probably beneficial. Fasts of up to 36 hours-ish are likely not to be harmful at all. But it's when you start getting beyond that that you don't really know. Likely to be neutral, but there may be a point where, anyway, it, it's not that I don't think this is the time I would just start going, you know, I'm going to do a really long fast now. I feel like I wouldn't. 10 day water fast, probably not the best. Yeah, just because the question, we don't know. The question is there. I've done some researching too, just to see. And, you know, I've seen a couple of articles on PubMed that indicate that. With longer fasts, you know, viruses, it actually is not protective against the viruses. The longer fast actually could cause you to have lowered immunity to viruses. But yeah, that was actually something I discussed in my book, What When Wine, and I need to revisit. Something that was fascinating was that in general, the context was like when you're sick and you lose your appetite, you know? I have that exact thing in Fast Feast Repeat. Yes. And the study that talked about listen to your body is right. If you, if you feel like you're not hungry, then fasting is probably what your body needs. But if you're hungry, then you should eat. But your body knows. And it's like starve a fever, feed a cold. 
that was like the first part of it. So for listeners, if you get my book, What, When, Why, and I have a section on this and it goes into details. But the first thing was what you just said, Jen, that we have the saying of starve a fever, feed a cold. And they think now that actually might involve the two types of immune cells that we have, certain ones that fight viruses while certain ones fight bacteria. So basically like eating may upregulate T1 cells and those specifically fight viruses which typically manifests when you have a cold, while fasting may upregulate T2 cells, which fight bacteria, which typically cause a fever. So it might be a very intuitive thing. But then the caveat was something I read in another study. It was saying that actually there is the chance that this whole response, like this T1, T2 thing, that it likely developed in a, like a prehistoric time when we actually had more bacterial infections rather than viral infections. And it's possible that today viruses and cancers with their mutations and how they've adapted, that they might actually be able to hijack your system and create an actual psychological lack of hunger. So you don't feel hungry, but you actually should be eating. That ties into what we were just saying, because with the viruses, you know, fasting might not necessarily be the best thing for that. The point that I want to keep in mind is that, you know, COVID is is brand new specifically, and a lot of what, you know, it's conjecture. And so I really have relied on what Dr. Jason Fung said, because I trust his opinion and the fact that he says our normal daily fasts, fasts up to 36 hours, probably beneficial. Just be cautious about the longer fasts for now. And again, listen to your body, be safe, stay home, and then hopefully you won't even get it. Yeah, what I had seen from Peter Atia, I think he was suggesting similar, like 24-hour fast being completely fine after that, you know, could potentially be problematic. In any case, and this is my personal opinion, but I don't see how doing daily intermittent fasting would be a problem. Like for most people, I know that's like a bold statement, but I think, especially if you've been doing it, I think it is very supportive of health and your immune system. So I think people shouldn't be scared about continuing their normal IF pattern. Also, don't feel, though, that you're invincible because we do IF. I mean, you know, I rarely get sick, but when I have gotten sick, it's it's passed very quickly since I've been doing intermittent fasting. You know, when I was teaching, used to, before intermittent fasting, I was sick every year. I had ear infections. I was always taking an antibiotic. And ever since you know, 2014, 2015, when I was really, you know, losing the weight, started doing intermittent fasting, I haven't had to go to the doctor for illness one single time. And I'm certain it's because intermittent fasting has strengthened my immune system. Does that mean I have never caught anything? No, I've had a cold, I've had, you know, the flu, but it wasn't bad enough to go to the doctor. So, you know, intermittent fasting is not going to make you completely bulletproof, but just from what we hear in the communities, having a lot less illness is pretty commonly reported. Exactly. And then what about her question about Starbucks instant coffee? You know, I, I think instant coffee is probably fine. I mean, I can actually, you know, you're mixing it with water, but I think it's probably fine. What do you think? I was really curious to hear what you were going to say because, I mean, it's black coffee, but I'm just... They crystallize it somehow, but it starts as black coffee. So I don't really know how they, the science of what they do to make it crystals, but. Yeah, it's just weird because it's like you're actually putting in, you know, the physical, you know, powder compared to the water through a brewed coffee. I don't think we have a definitive answer, but I think it's probably fine. I think the only way you would know is if maybe you're drinking, you know, normal black coffee. And then if you switch to instant coffee and experience issues, that would be telling. I would probably suggest if somebody's just starting afresh to just 
not go the instant coffee route, but if it's unflavored and black, I think it's okay. I was actually really, really curious to see if you had like a strong feeling about it either way. I really don't. And I've thought about it before. And I think I've even researched it before. In fact, I know I have. And I couldn't come up with a definitive, but I think it's probably fine. But again, that's a good advice to not start off with it. You know, start with regular brewed coffee. All right. Shall we go on to the next question? Yes. Okay. This is from... Sonal or Sonal, I'm not sure how to say it, and the subject is feeling different. Hi, ladies. I'm a huge fan of your podcast, and I've binge listened to them all since last year. Thank you for the fabulous job you do and the wealth of information you disseminate. It really is reassuring to listen to you ladies each week, encouraging us to keep up this way of life, which I love. I've written to you a couple of times in the initial stages of fasting. I started in August 2019 to try and figure out timings, etc., and how to fit in this way of life to my fitness schedule. I am on a fat loss slash muscle building plan at the moment and am therefore counting macros and calories. This means that my eating isn't exactly intuitive at the moment because I need to eat two meals a day plus protein shakes to get all my nutrients in. I fast between 16 to 18 hours daily, usually 17 most days. My question is, should I feel any different? I've heard people talk about autophagy, feeling more alert and energetic, and other health benefits. I haven't felt any changes at all since starting. I'm wondering if I'm doing something wrong. I clean fast with just water, I'm not a tea or coffee drinker, for the 17 hours and eat my normal diet within the two meals plus a daily shake as mentioned within my eating window. It's about 1,200 calories daily. I am losing weight, but I would expect to do so anyway on this diet plan. I was wondering if you ladies could help. I'd love to tap into all these health benefits if I can. Thanks again for all you do, and I hope my question gets picked this time. Well, it got picked, so yay. (laughs) I was going to say really briefly, I don't know if you want to address this at all. I think the plan that you're on sounds really great, and I know like with the plan you're doing that you feel the need for the, the two meals a day plus the protein shakes to get all the nutrients. Keep doing it. If it's working for you, that's great. I just want, if listeners are new to this, I don't want them to think that necessarily to get all their nutrients that it has to be two meals and protein shakes because we, we've had a lot of conversations before about getting all your nutrients in and certain windows and is that possible and it can be really different for different people. The only reason I'm saying that is because the way she worded it, she said she needs to eat that to get all of her nutrients and for her, you know, maybe she does, but I don't want people to think that necessarily applies to everybody. Does that make sense? Is that something worth pointing out? Yeah, Absolutely. But as far as the question goes, so I immediately had, I thought this was such a great question. Like, should I feel any different? And I actually had a question about this recently, not about fasting, but somebody posted in my group and they said they started taking serapeptase and they were like, everybody says they feel things. I'm not feeling any different. Should I feel any different? I think it's such a great question. So on the one hand, I think there are two potentially extreme ways people can all of a sudden feel different that might manifest. So a lot of people start intermittent fasting and they they do experience all these amazing benefits. Like they feel more alert. They feel more energetic. One thing that she didn't mention that a lot of people experience is all of a sudden they realize they don't have cravings all the time. They don't feel like they need to be constantly eating. That's wonderful. A lot of people experience that. On the flip side, some people start fasting and they actually feel bad. (laughs) They feel different and not a good way. 
And there are a lot of reasons for that that we've talked about before. There's obviously the transition period that some people need to go through where their body is learning again how to burn fat for fuel, where you're, you know, getting off of the glucose roller coaster. So that would be a potentially, you know, temporary transition in theory. Also, if electrolytes aren't being addressed, that could be a thing. Then there's also the caveat that some people, because of how incredibly toxic our bodies can be today with all of the foods that we've been eating, especially endocrine disruptors and things like skincare and makeup, like all the environmental chemicals, so many things, it really can create a bit of buildup in our body. And going on a fast, I say that like it's a long thing, but trying intermittent fasting when you haven't done that before can actually create detox reaction because your body actually might start excreting toxins and that can make you feel pretty bad. So as far as feeling different, it's like, yes, you might start feeling great. You might feel worse. You might feel actually pretty bad. All of that is an expected response, depending on who you are as a person, where your body is at. If you don't feel any different, like Sonal or Sonal is not feeling any different. No, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Something to ask yourself is, were you feeling good before? Are you still feeling good? I don't think you're doing anything wrong then. If you were feeling bad before and you're not feeling much better, then you might be wanting to, to tweak things. It's hard to compare it to people talk about the increased energy and everything. So it might be that the feeling of being really in the fasted state and like it's almost like the flow state or like being in the zone, that might be something that you've experienced before and it might be something that you would experience with intermittent fasting and you would be like, oh, that's what this feeling is. It's hard to know where your baseline is and what you're comparing to. Jim, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think it's really likely that she's not fasting quite long enough to get into ketosis. She said her average is 17 most days. And here's something interesting. I had found recently, you know how stress affects us all differently. I, you know, with the whole stress of quarantine and uncertainty, even though I mentioned it, my daily life hasn't really changed. We're still worried. You know, oh my gosh, are we going to be able to get toilet paper? Oh my gosh, are we going to be able to get food? Will there be meat? I mean, you know, all these stressful things. I have been opening my window earlier and having longer windows. And I just realized, why am I doing this? The stress is getting to me. So I was like, I'm going to tighten up my window. So for the past few days this week, just because I was like, I can't stress eat my way through this, like I think a lot of people have been doing, but I was doing it a little bit too. So I've been really tightening up my window and fasting for more like 20 hours a day instead of maybe 17. And it's amazing the difference between 16, 17, 18, and 20. Because once I get past a certain point, boom, that's where the real energy and mental clarity pops in. And I can really feel it. So I would encourage you to see what happens if you can try 20. Just just give yourself, say, for, for three days, I'm going to try to get to 20, and I'm going to see if I can feel any different. If the answer is no, if you don't feel different, then that's an experiment that you tried, and you, maybe you're already feeling you know as great as, as you need to feel. Like Melanie said, your baseline feeling was good enough and awesome, and so now you still feel great and you don't need any different energy. Am I explaining that well, Melanie? I think I'm just very clunky with the way I said it. But you may find there's that energy and alertness just another hour or two or three into the fast. It's amazing the difference. Just because, like I said, I'd been opening my window a little earlier. I'd be like, oh, it's 2.30. I'm going to go ahead and have something versus waiting till 4.30. Huge difference. So 
I have a caveat to that. Normally, if this was coming from a listener that was just trying intermittent fasting, that like that was the only change they had made and they were doing a 16 to 18 hour daily fast and they, you know, weren't feeling much different. 100% I'd say try a longer fast. My caveat is that Sonal or Sonal, I really want to know how she says her name. She's exercising, building muscle and on a very restricted diet. So I think she is definitely getting into, I mean, I feel like she has to be getting into ketosis on those calories. And if she's on an intense fat loss muscle building program. Well, I don't know. It doesn't say intense. She just says she's doing fat loss muscle building. Well, she's doing fat loss and muscle building. So that would insinuate she's doing weightlifting for muscle building. And if it's fat loss as well, you know, it's calorie restricted. Whereas normally when you're doing like a muscle building type program, you know, a lot of times you're not eating at a calorie deficit. You're eating, you know, at maintenance or calorie surplus in order to build muscle. But if you're trying to lose fat and build muscle with, you know, high protein calorie restricted diet, because that basically from my research, it if you want to build muscle and lose fat, it does require a high protein calorie restricted diet, which is, I mean, that's the way to do it. And I think that's the healthiest way to do it if that's your goal, but that is a lot. And then if you're coupling it with fasting, that's even more. The thing is that I like is she doesn't say that it's hard right now for her to do the fasting. She doesn't, I don't, she doesn't say anything about being hungry. She doesn't say she's struggling because I think if this email had come and she said, you know, I'm doing this and this is hard and I'm struggling, I think we would have given the exact opposite answer would be like, you know, try fasting less or try eating more since she's not experiencing that. Well, I I do think that possibly eating more might be a good strategy. I wanted to jump in and say that shorter window, but not being so restrictive within it. Because to me, having a 16 hour fast with a 1200 calorie diet in your window is bordering on overly restrictive. So I, I know this sounds crazy to somebody possibly, but I think fast longer, eat more would actually be beneficial. That is the huge caveat because like with her current situation, I would not suggest to maintain that specific macros and calories and fast longer. Oh yeah. I definitely am not a fan. I hadn't gotten to that. The 1200 calories daily. I I don't recommend that you do a restrictive diet coupled with intermittent fasting and heavy exercise. That would not be what I would recommend at all. Okay, perfect. So it seems like we actually have two different approaches we're recommending. You know, with Jen, like you could do a longer fast and try eating more. I would actually recommend, because some people do really well with specific macro calorie counting plans coupled with exercise for specific fat loss muscle building protocol. And it's supposed to be short term and that's the mindset around it. That's what they're doing. Some people do really well with that. Some people don't. If you do really well with that, I see nothing wrong with doing that. The thing with doing it is a lot of people are like miserably hungry while doing that. So if you're doing this though, and you're not miserably hungry, I think that's actually a really good sign that you shouldn't be doing anything different with the fasting because it's allowing you to, you know, maintain this diet that you're choosing to to maintain for your body composition for the time being. I wouldn't be looking to feel like alert and energetic and like some amazing breakthrough. I would reevaluate, you know, after you've reached this goal or moved off, then evaluate if you'd like to fast longer. Yeah. To me, it just seems a little overly restrictive that I would worry about metabolic slowdown with, with the 16, eight and 1200 calories a day and a lot of working out. I don't know. I would just worry about that. Yeah. I think that's really telling because should she feel any different? Most people on that would probably be not be feeling so amazing. (laughs) So the fact that you're feeling good still, I wouldn't stress about not 
experiencing this like amazing feeling just because there's there's a lot going on there. Yes, that is true. All right. Well, I hope that that was helpful. Yes. Hi, friends. We hope you're enjoying the show. So I have really exciting news. My chiropractor had started using a very cool device on some chronic shoulder stiffness that I've been experiencing for quite a while now, as well as this weird stiff area that I get in my lower ab that I've actually had for about four years now. And this device was creating profound effects in addressing those areas. So I made it my mission, of course, to contact the company and try to partner with them for this podcast so I could share my findings with listeners and of course, get you guys a discount as well. And now that's happened. Okay, here we are, Theragun. So Theragun is a professional grade, handheld percussive therapy device that provides deep muscle tissue treatment to release tension, accelerate recovery, and enhance performance. So the founder, Dr. Jason, he actually created it after he was in a traumatic motorcycle accident that left him in debilitating muscle and nerve pain, and he couldn't find anything that actually helped, so he took things into his own hands and created Theragun. In fact, in 2014, after shortly developing it, he actually met with the New England Patriots, and they requested multiple units for the team. So whether you're an elite athlete with muscle pain or just a quote, regular person like me trying to get through the day, muscle pain and muscle tension are definitely a real thing and Theragun can truly help. You can use it to relieve strain, relax individual muscle groups, relax before bed, sleep better, and so much more. So if you want to feel better naturally, treat your pain and get back to your life, you can try Theragun risk-free for 30 days or your money back. Just go to theragun.com slash ifpodcast. And for a limited time, our listeners to this podcast actually get up to $150 off of your device. That is so huge. I am so grateful for that. So that's theragun.com slash ifpodcast. Again, theragun.com slash ifpodcast. Guys, I'm obsessed with my unit. And when my chiropractor was using it, I actually didn't even realize it was available to the public. So this is very exciting. So definitely check that out. And I'll put links to all of it in the show notes. We're also supported in part today by Juve. Juve makes red and near-infrared therapy devices, which use the power of light to work wonders in your body. These wavelengths actually change the way that your cells generate energy on the mitochondria level. And because of that, it can address a multitude of issues. You can use it for anti-aging benefits in the skin. That's definitely a crowd favorite to use it. Clinical studies show it increases collagen production and can reduce fine lines and wrinkles. You can use it for targeted fat burning. They're not exactly sure how it works. There are a lot of theories, but one is that these wavelengths may actually break down fat cells so they become more porous and then leak their fatty acids into the bloodstream and then you can burn them off. And of course, if we're doing intermittent fasting and in fat burning mode, I mean... That's really just the way to go for targeted fat burning. One of my personal favorites is regulating the circadian rhythm and mood. Red light is actually the type of light found in the rising and setting sun. And unfortunately, we're not exposed to it as much naturally anymore, thanks to our modern indoor lifestyles. So you can turn on your juve in the morning and evening. It's great for both waking you up and calming you at night. Of course, the specific wavelength is key. You can't just, you know, get a little device that puts out some red light and think that you'll get all of these benefits. You have to make sure you're getting very specific wavelengths. That's why we adore Juve. They make amazing devices that create the exact wavelengths you need to experience all of these benefits. 
You can get one for yourself. Just go to juve.com slash ifpodcast and use the coupon code ifpodcast to get a free gift from Juve as well. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. All right, so now we have our next question. This comes from Casey. The subject is changing shifts. And Casey says, hey, Melanie and Jen, love your podcast and have been binge listening to it recently and learning so much. I am a medical resident and often have to switch my schedule between days and nights. Generally, I am on days and have an eating window from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. However, I often have to switch to nights, which throws my routine into a bit of a whirlwind. I'll give an example of how I usually switch my window, which seems to be working well, but wanted your all's opinion. I worked a Monday from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. I opened my window at a normal time of 7 p.m. and ate until around 10 p.m. I was switching to nights the following day and wouldn't start my shift until 5.30 p.m. Tuesday evening. I chose to just extend my fast until the following morning because I usually get quite tired after I eat and also cannot sleep on an empty stomach. I break the fast on Wednesday morning when I finish the night shift. Therefore, I have about a 36-hour window where I am not eating. I remember listening to one of your earlier podcasts where you mentioned a study that used intermittent fasting to prevent jet lag and approach this in a similar way. Any advice or thoughts about this method of moving my eating window? Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's a great idea. I I would probably feel the same way. You know, if I were a shift worker, I do feel like I would not want to eat right before my shift. So that makes perfect sense. And just like you mentioned with the jet lag and the traveling, I think shifting your window for your overnight shift makes perfect sense if that if that makes you feel good and it you keeps you energetic during the fast while you're working. I think that's wonderful. What do you think, Melanie? Yeah, I have some few thoughts about this. So I think it's really, really fascinating how much eating ties into our natural circadian rhythm. Something that like really made me think was I recently had Tara Young Blood on my podcast, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but she's the founder of Chili Pad, which is basically a, it's like my favorite thing in the world. It's a mattress that uses water to maintain it at a certain temperature, not mattress, it's mattress cover because temperature really affects sleep. In any case, one of the things she pointed out was just how intensely eating is tied to sleep. And I will say for listeners, I think it was her, but now I'm actually questioning if it was her, but (laughs) that was a great interview in any case. The takeaway was that if you think about it, like you can say, oh, food doesn't really affect our natural circadian rhythm, but think about how, you know, you could have be plenty rested and then eat a huge meal in the middle of the day and feel the need to fall asleep. Or you could be completely exhausted, sleep deprived, but starving or feeling starving and not be able to fall asleep. So just thinking about that is so telling about how intensely our, our food intake ties into our, you know, whether or not we can fall asleep or not. And I think that's great. Casey mentioned how we talked before about jet lag. And that was one thing that they had seen was that you could use fasting and eating as a way to combat jet lag. Because if you fasted during travel, basically, and then ate in the normal time zone upon reaching your destination, it could it was basically a great way to reset your circadian rhythm. So I think something that's really great is because we do know that as far as like metabolic issues and weight gain and things like that, I don't think there's a single study showing that night shift workers in general have improved metabolic health. I have yet to see a study ever showing that. It seems to often be the, the opposite. So it seems that one thing we know is that, you know, living out of line with your natural circadian rhythm, whatever that may be, is probably not the best for health. But 
that doesn't change the fact that some people have these jobs, that their hours are constantly changing. So it's like, how can we, you know, be the healthiest that we can be given that? So focusing on quality food choices is so huge. Maintaining some sort of fasting pattern, even if it is changing around, which I love. It sounds great with Casey because he or she, I guess we don't know, has basically been able to, you know, get in these 36-hour fast and still finding a pattern that allows him or her to have the meal, you know, before sleeping or not be eating before working. So I, I think like with your situation, Casey, that what you're doing is great. Like you found something that's allowing you to get in different amounts of fast. That's allowing you to eat when you feel the need to, you know, fast when that's more appropriate. So I think keep doing what you're doing. It sounds really great. And then one other thing I will throw out there, it's not necessarily night shift workers, but there's often this idea that people who go to bed later, that that's like not as healthy or that, you know, eating late and going to bed late is, you know, a problem. But I have seen things talking about how most likely, and this is talking about something with a consistent schedule, not a shifting night shift schedule. It's possibly more healthy to have, say you're a person who eats late and goes to bed late. It's probably slash possibly more healthy to maintain a consistent schedule of going to bed late and eating late and like having a consistent wake up time and bedtime, even if it's later compared to constantly shifting that around and sometimes going to bed late, sometimes going to bed earlier, because it's really about that natural rhythm. The reason I'm saying that is I think a lot of people, you know, stress about eating late or being night owls. But I think if it's part of your rhythm and a consistent thing, I wouldn't super hardcore stress about it unless you see things really not working for you. And of course, you can tweak things from there. So yes, the amount of research I do on circadian rhythm, sleep, eating late, et cetera, is insane. I'm so fascinated by it. But do you have any other follow-up thoughts, Jen? No, I think that was it. Shall we go into the next question? Yes. And this is from Diane. And the subject is IF and JF. And in case you're wondering what JF is, you'll know in a minute. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, ladies. Love, love, love you guys. I've written in before, but not sure if you've read my question yet. I'm still only on episode 111. No biggie. I have another question. On episode 105, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Melanie went on about her experience moving back to Atlanta and how she was eating outside of her normal eating window for about a week. She then jokes about how maybe she should have juiced instead. I laughed when I heard about it because I was actually doing a three-day juice cleanse myself at the time and am also an IFer for about two months now with typically a 16-8 or 18-6 approach. My question basically is, how do you ladies feel about this? I still followed my windows and only drank the juices when my eating window opened, but for the three days, I stretched it to 14-10 to ensure I was getting enough nutrients in the day. I honestly don't know if I was or not. Sorry for the long post, but I'd love some insight. I feel great. I've lost about 13 pounds since I started this IF journey, and I'm also loving all of the other healthy benefits that come with it. I've done the three-day cleanse twice and even did an entire 24-hour fast. I really do feel wonderful, but I'm always fearful that I may be doing more harm than good by overdoing it. I look forward to listening to you ladies for as long as you keep this thing going. Thank you for all that you do. I have a lot of thoughts about juice fasting. It's so funny. I remember joking about that because basically when I moved from LA to Atlanta last time, it felt like a very stressful move. And I was playing around with my eating windows and in retrospect, it actually still, I I sort of wish I had gone about it differently. It's kind of like what we're talking about earlier. I don't think like extending my eating window 
and eating more and chalking it up to, I need the fuel. I need to be less stressed was like the best thing. And the reason I made the thing about the, the juice cleanse was I was thinking that if I'm not a huge proponent of juice cleansing, but I can see how it could be beneficial short-term therapeutically. Just, I've been thinking a lot about this because say that you go into a state of, you know, even if it's like three days where you're, especially if it's a lot of green juices as well. Yes, maybe you're switching to an entirely, completely glucose-based metabolism, but a glucose-based metabolism in the context of essentially be a fat-free diet with high nutrient assimilation I could just see, and this is just me thinking aloud, but I could just see how it's literally providing constant nutrients to your body, assuming you have like the fat to lose, potentially burning fat, losing weight as well. I can see how it could be like therapeutic for short short term. And I'm actually not, you know, based on the individual, true, you'd be running on glucose 24 seven, but I actually don't have a problem with that because glucose is a natural fuel for our body. And if it's in the context of not overeating and not paired with fat, which is where I think a lot of the problems come in. Basically, I can see how it could be therapeutic. That's why I don't have a problem with it per se. Not long-term though. I'm just saying like on the short-term side of things. So with Diane, she's talking about doing these juice fasts. It's interesting because she's doing it in a, in a window. <laughs> so she's getting the fast and she's getting this juice fasting as well in the window. Okay. So her fear is that she's doing more harm than good by overdoing it. I think it's probably okay. I'm saying that hesitantly because I'm not a doctor. I don't know your weight before. I don't know what's happening. I don't know all of the context. I can just give you my opinion, but I personally don't see, I think it's probably okay. And then my other thought is that if we think about, you know, doing something like a juice fast or let's say like a fruit fast or something where it's very high carb, you know, low fat, you may think that that would be contrary to fasting, which is fat burning, or that that would, you know, not be supportive of fat burning. Cause like I said, you're running on glucose or fructose. But something I find really interesting is that I've recently been reading Mastering Diabetes and it's by Cyrus and Robbie. I don't know their last names. It's a new book. It's a New York Times bestseller. And they are huge, huge advocates of actually a high carb, very high carb, <laughs> a very high carb, very low fat, it's also low protein, which I, I'm going to ask some questions about because they're coming on my podcast diet though for health and actually for diabetes. But what I find really interesting about their approach is they are actually huge fans of intermittent fasting, which is usually, you know, oftentimes on like the, the low fat, high carb diets, the fasting doesn't really come in, but they're actually big fans and they think it should actually be a part of your, your daily life. Did I tell you I'm reading that book too? Yeah. Yeah. I got so excited when you said that. Have you finished it? No, because I keep like getting interrupted and then doing other things. <laughs> Facebook is, keeps interrupting me. I'll like start reading and then I'll forget I was reading it. But yeah, they definitely have intermittent fasting in there as part of it. It just is fascinating to me. I've never felt good on a really low fat diet like they recommend, like that low fat. I say that, but I did follow a low fat diet a long time ago back in the in the 90s and I did great. But more recently, I have not. I think it's really individual. The reason I found their book was actually they were interviewed on Paul Saladino. So he's like, you know, one of the main carnivore guys. And he had them on the podcast, which I was like so excited because they're basically, you know, they're like the hardest thing from carnivore. They're like high fruit. No, oh, they're also no animal products. They're literally the opposite. They're vegan, right? Yeah. They're literally the complete opposite. Almost. 
doing the caveat because I heard the interview and I was like, thank you. Because I feel like so many people who are proponents of low protein, you know, anti-animal products, like high carb, low fat diets are almost hostile towards the low carb approach, or they think that like, it doesn't work at all. Cyrus and Robbie, they're very open. I don't feel like they're cherry picking from like reading their book. Cause I read the book after listening to the interview. I don't get the sense that they're cherry picking. I get the sense that they, you know, really do believe this and really are trying to find the answers. And yes, they actually have problems with low carb and they do think it creates a state of physiological, what's the word? Insulin resistance. Basically, they think that like what you see on the blood work, you know, you might see low glucose, low blood glucose, and you might see potential benefits, but they actually don't think that's what's going on. They said that the low carb slash keto approaches give you benefits in the short term, but have drawbacks long term. That's what they believe. Exactly. And one of the main questions I'm going to ask, I have so many questions for them. I'm so excited about this interview. Now, I, now I'm going into like interview mode with them right now, but but I have a lot of questions for them because basically they do say that, that long-term, they don't think it's a good idea. I can actually completely see how that could be the case if you do create a state of like transient insulin resistance with a low-carb diet and then go back to a normal diet. I could see how that could be an issue. I do wonder if that's an issue if you are long-term low-carb. I have a lot of questions for them because what they'll do is they'll basically, they talk about potential issues that could be a problem with low-carb diets they attribute that to definitely happening on a long-term low-carb diet, but I don't think it takes into the so many things into account, like what type of low-carb diet are you doing? You know, because there's such a big difference. It's a theoretical kind of concern. Yeah. The other thing is like one of the things they say in the very beginning of the book, which I agree with completely, because what they start with, and a question I'm going to ask them when I interview them is, you know, okay, if low-fat, high-carb is the way to reverse diabetes, why are more people not doing it? Or why is it not, you know, Like, why don't we know this if that's the case? And why is low carb always posited as the route to that? And, but what they address in the beginning of the book is that the majority of studies on quote, low fat diets aren't actually low fat enough. And I actually agree. That's the exact same thing the low carb people say. Exactly. And so I think that they're all right. I think that the low fat diets that have been studied aren't low fat enough. And the low carb diets that have been studied are not low carb enough. I agree. Because it seems like, for the, the magic of this low-fat diet to work for diabetes, you have to be extremely low-fat. Oh, my gosh. I wish I could remember the lady's name, who she was, what it was. There's somebody who did a presentation about this, and I've, I've seen it's like it's on a very long blog post. Gosh, I wish I could think of it. Does this ring any bells to you, Melanie? She talks about how like she was at, in the low-carb community. Denise Minger. That's her. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's my favorite. There's, She has the best blog post about this. Yes, I've read that blog post. I just reread it last week. It's amazing. I reread it about a month ago. <laughs> I couldn't think of her name, but that's the one. Listeners, it's like a book, but it's amazing. It really is long. It goes on and on and on. I'm like, why? This is really long. But it's talking about how the magic is in the very low of either side. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you brought it up because literally I read, okay, so Jen, I read Mastering Diabetes. I was prepping for it and I was like, I need to go read Denise Minger's post again because listeners, it takes a long time to read. It's it's ridiculously long. It's really long. And then by the end, you're like, what did I read? <laughs> but you can go back through it. I will put a link to it in the show notes. 
oh, it's brilliant. And this is something I just love Denise Minger so much. Basically her history is she was doing lots of diets and stuff growing up. And then she, she went on like a fruitarian or like a veganism, like some sort of like, you know, that type of diet and saw a lot of benefits, but like her teeth like started falling out and like energy problems. So then she switched to more like paleo, like lower carb, saw benefits from that. Now I think, well, it's hard to tell because she stopped she stopped writing blog posts, which just like makes me want to cry. But she ultimately, I think, gravitated more toward like a higher fruit type diet. But this blog post that she talks about is she really went in deep and she looked at, you know, what is going on here with low fat versus low carb diets. And what she says is that initially she thought that the magic of low fat diets was because people are switching to more whole foods. They're cutting down polyunsaturated fatty acids that I talk about all the time, that that was really where the magic was. But she went in and like read all these studies and like looked at the history of low fat. And really, honestly, like the magic seems to be in the extreme low fat nature of it, independent of, yes, you get benefits from switching to whole foods and things like that. But it seems to actually be independent of that because, for example, like the Kempner rice diet, that's the one, yeah, that I was thinking about. It was very processed. That diet was very processed, right? Well, so, because one thing she talked about was like how we think that Ansel Keys was the one who started the whole low-fat thing, but really there was all the stuff before them and before him. And yeah, so Kempner, he actually was able to reverse diabetes, reverse chronic kidney disease that they thought was not reversible, and create complete metabolic changes and weight loss in his patients. And it was on a diet of... The only thing that was allowed was white rice, fruit juice, sugar, and fruit. And I think they did it through Duke University. Is that right? It was at a university, yeah. He's not the only one. She she looks at other researchers. And, you know, sometimes these super low-fat diets are completely whole foods, but sometimes they're not. One of the researchers, the diet included, like, low-fat milk, sugar, like, it, like, none of that was off the table. People saw amazing health benefits. So it seems that the magic is quite possibly in the extremely low fat side of things. And the problem is, or a potential problem is if you are in this metabolic state of extremely low fat, if you do bring in some fat, I think it can be very, very dangerous because it can basically mess with that whole system that you're working on where you you have reached a state of really intense insulin sensitivity due to the low fat nature. And if you bring in some fat, that can actually be a big problem. So it's really, really fascinating, but it goes back to the question with Diane because, you know, <laughs> juice fasting and low fat and all the things. So as far as like, is it harmful or is it a problem? I personally don't think in the context, if you're maintaining the super, super low fat approach that it's a problem. And I think before this, I would actually be a little bit nervous about doing it with fasting because I would think like, oh, but you're, you need to be running on that, that glucose 24 seven, but after reading Cyrus and Robbie's book and realizing they're actually an advocate of fasting as well, I think that's a really fascinating perspective. So apparently, you know, it, it seems like if you're insulin sensitive, if there's insulin sensitive, fasting really goes in line with that. Fasting can support that and help create that. Or on the flip side, if you become insulin sensitive through diet, you probably are more likely to be able to easily fast. And there is the possibility just to like blow people's minds that potentially a super, super low fat, even like a juicing type thing might actually create that. Yeah, I just looked it up. Kempner, K-E-M-P-N-E-R. He abs yeah, he was at Duke University. And he's he came up with this in 1939. That's when he started experimenting with it. But they did lots of research. I mean, Duke University is not a slacker university. It's really well respected. 
apparently a lot of the patients were not like they were actually like really hungry on that diet. See, that's the thing. I feel like I would be really hungry on it. Yeah. That's why I actually am really intrigued by super low fat, high protein, high carb diets paired with intermittent fasting. Because I feel like in theory, if it works for you, it's almost the best of all worlds because you get the insulin sensitivity of a high carb, low fat diet, but you still have the protein and then you get like all the fasting benefits. That's why I just know that that's worked really well for me in the past. I just remember back in my crazy, crazy diet trying days, the potato hack. Do you, do you know that one? Yeah, where you just eat potatoes. All the potatoes. And I'm like, I love potatoes. They're my favorite. Like after potato number one, I was starving. And then after potato two, I was even more starving. <laughs> but if I put butter and sour cream on it, I'm full for the like days. So the potato hack did not work for me. I was so hungry. <laughs> So for listeners, so that blog post is called In Defense of Low Fat, A Call for Some Evolution of Thought, Part 1. It makes me really sad because it's Part 1 and she never wrote a Part 2. Did she not write Part 2? Because I was looking for it. No. Okay, that might explain why I couldn't find it. She basically became well-known because she debunked slash wrote a really intense analysis of Dr. Campbell's China study, and that's how she kind of... I think became really popular and, but the posts she writes are just incredible and she kind of has stopped blogging and it makes me want to cry, but I think I actually have a connection to her. So I'm trying to like track her down. She has a really great though, at least if you don't read the whole post, at least go to the post and look at the little graphic she made. I think it sums it up really well. Basically it's like this picture and it says there's like magic. If you're less than 10% calories from fat, And then there's a different type of magic if you're greater than 65% calories from fat. And then in the middle, she calls it macronutrient swampland. (laughs) But amazingly, that's where I feel the best. I feel best living in the swampland, which sounds crazy. I know, but because I've experimented with both ways since, you know, reading that, I think even I'm like, well, let me try and see what low fat feels like. And I just can't, can't feel satisfied in the same way I was never satisfied when I did high fat. I think the macronutrient swamp plan is, can definitely be appropriate if it's paired with, you know, fasting that works or if it's, you know, calorie restricted. Yeah, because I, I have it paired with fasting. But it's just interesting that I never feel satisfied on either end of that magic place where I want to feel, I want to feel great. <laughs> like I want to try low fat and feel great on it, or I want to f- try the low carb and feel great on it, but I don't. And so it always comes back to, that can't be right for my body because I'd never feel satisfied. And I'm the opposite. I pretty much feel like I need to be at one extreme or the other. I only feel good if I have fat and carbs together. So yeah, so interesting. That would indicate you probably have very, very good insulin sensitivity because if you didn't, pairing together fat and carbs, if you're not insulin sensitive can be that. I mean, I think that's where a lot of the issues lie. Yeah, probably so. So I bet you have very epic insulin sensitivity. Probably. (laughs) Probably, yeah. I think it's so funny that you brought that up and I was literally just reading it. But the fact that you could pull out her name, but yeah, that's great. Because I read it the first time around, but then when I read it the second time, I read it with the context knowing I'd be interviewing Robbie and Cyrus. And I was like, I got to read what she says. And um, it's great. It really is great. Because she was fully on the in the like she was expecting to ruffle feathers with it. And, and basically it was, hey, all of you that are on either side of this, look, the other side has something to it. 
I really think that's what, what I got out of it. You know, I always loved that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I loved it. And I loved, like she said, how she's like, there has to be something there because the data doesn't lie. If people are like experiencing all these health benefits on extremely low fat diets that are including like, you know, sugar and like processed food. Juice. Yeah. Like, you know, cause people will be like, oh, that's like, you can't, I mean that it, that's what happened. And it wasn't just one person. It was multiple people finding this. So, and I just love, of course, my favorite part was that she says in the post that she originally thought it probably was from reducing polyunsaturated fats, but even that might not be the case. So it's really fascinating. All right. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. If you'd like to submit your own questions for the podcast, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. The show notes for today's episode will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 157. So definitely check that out. I feel like we referenced a lot of things today. So definitely check that out. We are a Himalaya partnered show. And if you follow us in the Himalaya app, you'll get early access to our podcast 24 hours in advance. So definitely check that out. You can also follow us on Instagram. We are ifpodcast. I'm Melanie Avalon on Instagram. Jen is Jen Stevens. And you can follow us on Twitter. We are the ifpod. All right. Anything from you, Jen, before we go? No, I think that's it. Great podcast. I enjoyed it. Me too. So I will talk to you next week. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.